This is UCD Business Impact. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark a little curiosity, and challenge you to think and rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist, and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, many of our listeners are fortunately still working, still have a job, but not necessarily in a workplace as such. They're probably in a spare room of the house, which I don't know whether you call that a workplace or a workspace, but either way, through Zooms, many of you are still engaging with your colleagues, still answering the phone, swapping ideas, yeah, participating in meetings, but it's possible that you haven't met anyone else in person for many months, which can kind of feel a little bit strange or liberating them. I won't tell anyone, but distance doesn't necessarily remove the unpleasant experiences or stresses of work. In fact, it may actually amplify them. So today's episode, we're going to focus on the modern workplace and modern organizational culture, particularly those kind of unseen and unsaid parts of the workplace that we kind of rarely talk about. And take a little look at this phrase, the toxic workplace. What does that mean? And what kind of toxins are people really talking about in the workplace? And can they be addressed? Now, my guide on detoxifying most unpleasant of workplaces is Dr. Darren Baker from the UCD Business School. He's an assistant professor of business and society who researches widely in this area. He's a psychosocial scholar who looks at gender, class, and leadership issues in the workplace. And Darren was recently listed a great achievement by the FT as being in the top 100 business school researchers with social impact. And he's throwing me a little bit of a curveball today by A, being a scouser, being our first ever, but also joining us not from the banks of the Mersey, but from sunny Sydney, where he's doing some research and data collection as part of a research fellowship at Sydney's UTS University. Um, good evening, or is it good afternoon, Darren? How are you? Evening, Emma, and, and good morning to you over in Dublin. Um, listen, you might want to stay there for a while because we're in full uh, level five lockdown here at the moment, but uh, <laughs> don't be rushing back. But I, I know that you're doing some research work, so I know it's difficult with the time difference, but we really do appreciate you coming on this episode of Business Impact. It's great to have you on board. And what we're trying to look at is the workplace, right? It's obviously been massively impacted by COVID-19. As I said in the intro, a lot of people don't have a place, really. They move from room to room or they're in their kitchen with a laptop. That is now the workplace. But that kind of distance doesn't necessarily mean some of the issues that are, you know, afflict some workplaces aren't there or don't kind of present themselves in different ways because of the pandemic. So I really wanted to talk to you today to look at the modern workplace and kind of have a look at what it looks like, what it feels like, um, what kind of things go on, what kind of energies flow through these places, what exercise of power goes on, who exercises that power, those kind of issues. So I thought I'd kick off with just kind of a broad survey between the two of us in this conversation of what does the modern workplace look like and what would you notice about it if, if you were to kind of have a, a closer look and stare in at this place? Gosh, yes, it's a very, um, it's a very uh, sort of clear picture, I think, that I have in mind when you ask that question, Emos. And I think certainly it feels like a very solitudinous workplace, quite a, quite a lonely workplace uh, in part. And I think that's partly because when I, when I think of the workplace now, it's very much an individualistic uh, place. And obviously that has a sort of context and a history um, you know, seeing the decline uh, of unions and collectivization and the, the rise of the individual, the idea that 
you know, an individual can achieve anything that they want in the workplace, you know, regardless of who they are, regardless of their gender, regardless of their class background. You know, if you work hard enough, you will be successful in the in the contemporary workplace. You know, and I think that obviously, that obviously that's embedded within, you know, broader, what we might consider to be meritocratic, you know, uh, language. And then we see that in broader society as well, not just in the workplace itself. So for me, it's quite, it's, it feels like quite a lonely place because of the breakdown in, you know, collective action amongst or between uh, employees. And I think as part of that, what we're seeing in the workplace is increasing uh, competition. So, you know, we've seen the decline of things like collective bargaining and in its place, you know, bonuses and promotions. And that's led to particular broader behaviours in the workplace. You know, the, the, the presenteeism that we've mentioned in, that's been mentioned in other podcasts, you know, the demand to always be visible in the workplace. Obviously, we're in a different, like different context now, but, um, you know, there's, you know, the, the idea that, you know, you have to look a certain way, comport in a certain way in the workplace. Uh, and these are all sort of implications of that more turbocharged, competitive, individualistic workplace and Darren, for the for the benefit of our listeners, it, it's probably worth mentioning as well that you've been studying the workplace for many years. You, you used to be a consultant with Deloitte and Accenture, and advising a lot of um, FTSE two hundred and fifty companies. So you've been you've been studying it academically, but also professionally for quite a long time. And a lot of the changes you're talking about have kind of accelerated in recent years. Um, this individualistic culture that you talk about. I mean, is that obviously the union thing is part of that? But are there other kind of dynamic forces uh, making that happen as well? You know, undoubtedly, we see a, broad, a broader societal, you know, change. It's not just in the workplace. And I think undoubtedly that seeps in. Well, what I see in the technology sector in particular is, yeah. is a certain type of specific culture, right? Where, you know, you walk in, the offices tend to look similar, bright colours, the famous mm. beanbag, <laughs> there's beer in the fridge. You know, there's pool tables, there's all sorts of games going on, fuzzball, all sorts of different things that are kind of become very identified with a particular tech sector office setting. And I think that's yeah. kind of a new thing. Um, um, and, and I suppose it's driving at something about this isn't just a workplace, but this is part of your wider life. So and this mm -hmm. is something I, I discussed with Maeve Houlihan, um a few months ago on a separate podcast was mm -hmm. this idea that the line between the workplace and the domestic space is kind of breaking down. Now, there's obviously in some ways a positive element to that, but is there also mm -hmm. things that we need to be worried about there? No, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there is, uh, you know, greater investment, if you will, uh, emotionally and in terms of energy and identity, moreover, in work, you know, um, you know, whereas in the past, you know, work was an exchange, a clear exchange of, of time and skills for remuneration. You know, I feel like work had a much clearer value, you know, uh, 30, 30 years plus ago. Whereas now, you know, work is you and who you are and the sort of person that you are. You know, I think that's, in, the, in that sense, you know, the, the boundaries between what you do, what you produce as a, as a worker, 
are much more blared. And then, you know, one could argue that work or power, as you alluded to at the start of this discussion, has seeped in much deeper within our flesh and bones than in the past. Perhaps in the past, by making that distinction, that separation between an exchange of work and now where you almost sell yourself, you know, as a person, the more emphoral aspects of work, you know, there, there is less there is less stress and importance on skills and experiences than in the past. And now it's, you know, much more about being professional and looking professional and, you know, face fit and these sorts of, um, uh, these sorts of uh, pressure points in the workplace. And I think work is much deeper within us than I think in the past. And Darren, one of the things that you, you look at in your research is the idea of the emotions that we experience often mm-hmm. unacknowledged in the workplace where everyone kind of just sort of moves around and, and obviously nowadays it's on zoom calls you know you just see a face <laughs> it's even more transactional i suppose because you don't really get to talk to the person outside the the immediate work transaction but you, you, the great strength of your work is that you look at the emotions that are kind of there under currents uh, can you walk me through a little bit of the ones that you've kind of seen in your research the kind of feelings people have in the workplace well, I think a really important point to mention initially is that, you know, the workplace likes to think of itself as a emotionless place or a, a very rational place. And, but actually the workplace is, is very emotional and is uh, very unconscious in that regard, whether or not people are aware of it or not. So I think that's a really important point to start off from. And I think that also, you know, sort of comes in with the ideas of, of professionalism and professionalization and being a professional as being, you know, a very contained, a very um, emotionless uh, worker. Um, very masculine, you know, certainly feminists would argue it's a very masculine figure. Um, but as I say, you know, the workplace is, um, is a very emotional place. And, you know, I think, you know, there, there is lots of emotions that, emerge as a result of, for instance, you know, the increase in competition, you know, thinking around that toxicity that you alluded to at the start of the, of the, uh, of the podcast, you know, the pressures that people are under now, the increasing scrutiny in the workplace, all of this can lead to quite toxic behaviours, toxic criticism, never feeling like you are doing enough or being good enough in the workplace. And that leads to a great sense of lack, I think, internally within employees. You know, a sort of deficit, a sense of deficit, a sense of lack in in oneself as an employee uh, in the workplace today. You know, and I think in parallel, what you're seeing in the workplace are the the the, the emergence of language uh, that sort of supports that. You know, in in academic sense, you know, ideology or discourse, but language that supports this this sort of increased competition, increased sense of, of lack. You know, we see language like confidence is, is one of my favourite um, words at the moment. Uh, it's it, actually a paper I wrote um, recently on confidence and how confidence is so prevalent in the workplace. You know, if you're not doing well enough, it's because you're, you lack confidence. If you're not... Yeah, if you if you don't perhaps uphold the implicit, idealized 
uh, image or figure of an employee, then you lack confidence. So like these discourses or language like dis- uh, confidence, you know, sort of support this, uh, you know, prevalent sense of lack in the workplace um, and sustain it, arguably. And of course, you know, feminists might argue that, uh, or feminists would argue that language like confidence is, is particularly gendered and it's particularly aimed at women and, and women perhaps not upholding some of those masculine uh, attributes of the ideal employee. Um, you know, I think there's also a great deal of disappointment in the workplace. You might even call it depression. You know, it's very rarely people speak about depression within the workplace or um, a sort of collective uh, depression. Um, but I think the where the way in which the workplace is constructed now, you know, we, we spoke about, you know, the, the meritocratic um, uh, virtues, uh, the, the idea that you can achieve anything that you want. Uh, these sort of this sort of language, these sort of fantasies that the organisations today are are built around, you offer a great deal to employees. You know, there's a there's a significant promise there that I think organisations um, do or offer, but obviously not everyone will succeed, and that's often because of sheer numbers or because of inequities or inequalities in the workplace. And I think as a result of that, you know, my research certainly shows that, you know, you you get a a huge amount of disappointment that um, that isn't contended with or managed internally by employees where leading perhaps, you know, to sort of what we might consider to be in a vertical as a sort of depression, a sort of um, significant loss um, at the idea that you have not been able to um, succeed uh, according to these sort of very elevated, grand ideas of of, uh, the contemporary workplace. And Darren, you certainly offer a very strong critique of the modern workplace and, you know, (laughs) you have research force behind it. But do you have reflections in the sense of can are these addressable things that you're talking about? Like, is there is there structures within the modern workplace that can alleviate some of this, or do we need to be far more radical and, and just look at the whole workplace from top to bottom and all the the, the decades and suppose centuries of evolution that's gone into the modern workplace we see? Do we need to kind of go back to to the start, or is it more about tweaking how we manage people and how we interact with people and the structures we have within the workplace? Is that a more, in your opinion, is that more likely to be a more productive way to look at these things? Obviously, HR departments are the first port of call for a lot of the issues you're talking about, but maybe this is far beyond just the small confines of a kind of probably under-stressed and under-budgeted um, HR department. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest issues or barriers is that often workers don't realise these things. So, you know, it, it's very difficult to, to bring into the consciousness some of the issues that I've spoken about uh, with employees, you know, and therefore it becomes, you know, a, a relatively radical approach, um, even though I, you know, arguably it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think there's obviously a piece around, you know, helping employees manage and, and digest their experiences, you know, looking at the positives and the negatives, actually, rather than just looking at 
the promise or the positives of the workplace. I think there's a real neglect um, or um, deflection or repression in psychoanalytical terms of um, issues in the workplace. And I think there's a piece around, you know, enabling or helping employees to to be to be more aware of of some of that negative material, some of that neg- some of that negative experience, and I think that would create change. And it you know it doesn't necessarily have to be radical at that point. You know it can be between the organisation and employees um, to to help emollient and, and, and alleviate some of those issues. I think for me one of the one of the biggest barriers is, is around that you know, individualistic, individual uh, piece that I spoke about at the start of the podcast, you know, you know, that, that fund, that's a sort of, you know, a fantasy or a myth that would have to change. Now, I'm not suggesting that we forget the individual or we forget the individual needs um, of each employee, but that there has to be, um, you know, the reestablishment to some extent of, some of the traditional structures that we had in place, um, you know, employees working together for change. I think that'll be my main sort of point around this, that the idea of employees working together for change. And, you know, when I, when I speak to um, executives and non-executives in, in the workplace, you know, they desire change. You know, they want to change the workplace, but they only tend to see it through their own viewpoint, through their own lens, rather than a, a broader change. So, you know, women will often talk about, you know, standing up for themselves in the workplace to demand fair pay and promotion with um, their, their male counterparts. And obviously that, that's, a, that's a positive thing. Women should be paid fairly to men but they don't see it as a, as a broader pursuit, a, a one of gender, for instance, you know, working together with other women to, to change that inequality or that um, inequity in, in, for instance, pay or promotion. So that would probably be my, and that, not, that is radical, of course, because it, you know, it can lead to uh, greater dissonance in the workplace and it requires an organisation that is, is perhaps you know engaging with the the hidden aspects of the workplace like inequalities and organizations don't tend to want to do that so it is fairly radical change although it's simply re- re-establishing some of the you know some of the uh, structures that were in place you know only sort of 40 or 50 years ago and of course there's, there'd be a whole conversation around you know to what extent you would need that but i think some of that needs to be brought back into the the workplace of the of the now to contend with some of the issues that I think. And Darren, you know, Darren, what, what strikes me what you're saying is we, we get um we get a cascade of material about emotional intelligence is now valued in leadership. You know, yeah. every CEO apparently is, <laughs> you know, showing this, demonstrating this every day, displaying it all the time. Emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence. But from what you're saying is that there's a lot of lip service going on here in the sense that everyone kind of agrees and, and nods sagely that we need to have more emotionally intelligent leaders. Mm-hmm. But is that actually to be found in the workplace when you get down to the level of individual employees, how they are you know, treated in the workplace? Or is it all a little bit kind of something that's very much just aspirational? Um, it's, a, you know, it's, a really, it's a really interesting question. I think... Um... Undoubtedly, organisations do talk about 
um, these the sort of softer sides um, of leadership and good leadership. You know, I'm thinking here of, you know, of the inc- inclusive leadership and these sort of new forms of leadership that are more dynamic forms of leadership that organisations aspire to have. But I think, you know, uh, when, when it plays out, organisations still place um, the majority of their value on, you know, numbers, you know, or sales, uh, you know these these sort of what are perceived of as being very concrete aspects um, of uh, an individual or leader's uh, uh, performance, um, rather than you know the, the sort of empathetic, uh, more inclusive behaviours that we know from research do engender a much a much better workplace uh, culture. So I, I think that there there is in a sense. You know, it's there in organisational language and organisational discourse, but I think, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, it's still not valued equally to it's, to essentially, form. Yeah, essentially, yeah. what you're saying is is what we measure matters. So if we, you know, yeah. when when it comes to that re- annual review, it, these other things are what get gets measured. So you know, that says a lot. Yes, gosh, yes, I do think, and that's a whole issue in of itself. You know, sort of. Um, you know, over measurement, you know, is, is, there, is there a sense of that in the workplace? You know, can you really measure the things that we're intending to measure? And I know from experience uh, and also just from my research that there is a lot of politics that goes, uh, goes on, even with um, what we think of as quite concrete, tangible measurements around performance. You know, who, who sold what work, you know, who was on whose team, you know, so even in, even in those sort of concrete or what fantasize concrete aspects of work, there's a lot of politics and negotiation that goes on behind that. So I think there's obviously a broader conversation around measurement and over measurement perhaps in the, in the contemporary, um, in the contemporary workplace. Well, let, let me put one other thing to you, um, which is a slight, slight, a gentle pushback to, to something you were saying there, but, is the idea of all of this in the workplace, it's a set of expectations on both sides, employer, employee. Now, I know immediately that's conflictual setting it up that way, but just bear with, bear with me on this one. So each person who goes into a workplace has a set of expectations. The employee has a set of how they're going to be treated. The employer has one that they're going to employ this person. In exchange, they're going to get certain things from them, whether we measure or whatever way we measure, right? Is there an issue of idealizing the workplace itself by the employee that we invest too much? You know, we we were told at the start, this is not life. Uh, This is eight hours a day, typically. You know, you have other things going on in your life. So don't invest, don't, don't, don't build this up too much psychologically as your whole world. But yet we all tend to do, um, whether, you know, that's our own fault or just the nature of the, the, the relationship in the first place. So is that something that we should bear in mind that as employees, and there, there are more of us that are employees than employers, as employees, do we build a rod for our own backs in the sense that we go in with a lot of expectations of how we're going to be managed, how we're going to kind of navigate our, true, our way through the workplace over many years, our pay, our conditions, just what it's like to be at the desk for eight hours a day in this place, you know, do we kind of create our own problems in a way, in the way we view our workplaces? I think the first thing that comes to mind really around uh, this idea of idealization is that I think, you know, organizations play a pivotal role in in constructing those uh, those idealizations or 
those fantasies of who they are uh, as an institution or as, as a collective. You know, if, we, if I go back to the idea of, of confidence, for instance, you know, organizations have been very um, instrumental around uh, dealing with what they see as, a, a, you know, as, as a lack of confidence in women and have provided training uh, often for, um, uh, for women who uh, feel like they lack confidence and that's what's stopping them from being successful in the, in the workplace. So organizations play an absolute pivotal role in producing these idealizations and, you know, it, it is, um, it's sort of understandable that the individual would, would uh, buy into them um, or, you know, these are very, very lucrative, very, um, you know, enticing uh, promises uh, or idealizations, you know, um, they're, they're, they're very alluring. <laughs> uh, they're very sublime. And it, it's understandable that one would be tempted by that promise. So, you know, there's a lot of work that organizations have to do around, uh, around you know, building separate fantasies or problematizing their current uh, idealizations. You know, I think the idea that, you know, you know, I, I definitely understand that there is a there is a contract and a, and a sort of an attempt to pin down the relationship. But you know, I think the idea that the individual, you know, sort of operates independently, is responsible for how they feel in relation to the organisation, is is perhaps you know it, it's just too simplistic. And I think you know the organisation has a a, a role uh, in recognising. Uh, the individual, uh, I think, you know, recognise that the individual has different needs and has different desires within the context of their fantasies or the desires or idealisations set by the organisation. Yeah, you're, um, you're, you're right, because if you go on any employer's website, you do see this idealised workplace that literally physically <laughs> looks very alluring is the word you used. But your employment contract is a more prosaic world where, you know, things are set within a framework of law. And, and you're absolutely right. Those yeah. two are just completely separated out. And, and I, yeah. I, I suppose my question is more, do people buy into the idealization more than what's strictly what they're going to be doing and what the organization they join is, is able to deliver to them? Um, but I think what you're saying is that the companies are responsible for, or the organizations are responsible for creating this other dreamy world that people yeah. get suckered into. Uh, obviously, a lot of this podcast, Darren, you, you're asking very searching questions. You, you're, you are a critic of the modern workplace, I think it's fair to say. Are you optimistic or pessimistic on the basis of what you've said in this podcast about the reformability of the workplace? I mean, obviously, workplaces are, you know, light years better than they were in the 19th century when we had, you know, people going down mines, children working up chimneys. So we have made progress and it should be, you know, noted just they're safer environments. They're, they're, they're more equal. They're not, they need to be more equal, but they're more equal than they were. So it's like the usual thing about time, you know, when do you cut in and make your observations, but are you, are you optimistic or pessimistic where we'll be going in the next 10 or 20 years? Um, like what's your kind of good instinct on that subject? Um, oh gosh, uh, <laughs> and preferably in a minute or two. <laughs> no, no, gosh, um, and I and I don't I don't want to say pessimistic. I'm trying to I'm trying to move away from that and try to offer a, a more ambivalent perspective. You know, I think 
one of the issues I think with organizations is that they are relatively, you know, I think organizations like to think of themselves as, you know, sort of very innovative and, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, very changeable and dynamic places, but actually they're quite conservative. And, um, you know, if we look at the, the level of change um, over the last 30 years, you know, looking at, you know, for instance, gender, yes, there's been, you know, there's a significantly greater um, uh, parity uh, of women uh, in the workforce now, which is fantastic. Um, but we obviously do see continued issues um, for women and other minorities progressing to senior positions in organisations. So, you know, a good thing, more work to be done. I think for me, though, the, I think the change will have to be from a, you know, a governmental or state level because I don't think organisations are doing enough to really change things and they have had significant amount of time to do so. There has been change and it is commendable, but um, it's not enough for the time frames that we're talking about, you know, sort of 20, 30, 40 years. So I'm, you know, and I, I think, you know, I think it's hard to say, you know, I think we, we do see some promise, you know, uh, politically sometimes we see promise, you know, we've seen a, a, a much, uh, you know, a clearer, a clearer left-wing critique perhaps of organisations and actually as well to some extent, um, you know, sort of centre-right politics responding to that, uh, particularly around um, economic inequality, you know, class inequality and, you know, ensuring that the economy works for all. And I think that for me is the is the, probably the, the central piece for the next 10 to 20 years. And we're sort of seeing a consensus politically around that you know, I think organisations will will slowly respond to that and ensuring that, you know, work pays, you know, that work has mobility. And, uh, you know, to some extent that promise is better fulfilled. But of course it could go a very, a very different and a much darker way. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll sort of leave it at that. Well, you're, spe- you're, you're speaking to us uh, as the US uh, presidential election gets underway. <laughs> so let's just leave it delicately poised and let's not yeah. guess at the outcome of that. But what you're, what you're essentially saying is wider political forces will have a big part to play in what the, the workplace will look like in future years. So, Darren, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on the line all the way late at night from Sydney. Well, not late, late-ish. <laughs> at night in, in Sydney as I said at the start I wouldn't be rushing back because we're <laughs> we have a lot of very very tough restrictions we're all undergoing at the moment hopefully they'll bring our case numbers down but enjoy the rest of your research journey over there and you've given us some very very insightful contributions on the workplace of today today on the podcast thank you very much for uh, contributing thanks Emma.